Hello and welcome to the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast, the second edition. This is your host, Scott, the anesthesia resident. All right, thanks for tuning in to the last uh, episode of the Intro to Trauma series. This is part six. Uh, and today we're going to talk briefly about management of traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury, and pregnant patients in the setting of trauma. Today was my last day on my uh, trauma rotation. So this kind of fitting that we end the last episode of the, the trauma series as well today. And I'm uh, excited to bring this to you. Uh, if you had the time, I'd really appreciate it if you start doing the pre-survey at this point. But if not, that's totally fine. And we'll go ahead and get started here. Okay, first, we're going to talk about traumatic brain injury. So any patient that comes in with a trauma, and then if they have any sort of altered consciousness, uh, you should consider that patients have some sort of traumatic brain injury. And the best way to assess this, and you can do the serial exams for this, is the GCS. It's basically the Glasgow Coma Scale. And if you haven't heard of this before, it's basically a set of ratings that, that gives you like an idea of degree of possible brain injury. So it has like three main scales, like the eye, movement, and verbal. So then based on how the patient responds to all those categories, you assign a score to it. Max is 15, and the lowest score is going to be three. So we're not going to spend too much time on this. Uh, if you are inclined to to learn more about it, I encourage you to look it up, especially if you're doing a trauma rotation or if you're a clinical base year resident, like intern, you're doing a trauma slash surgery rotation. This is probably something really good to to know as well. So moving on, basically, there are two main categories of traumatic brain injury, primary and secondary. So primary is related to the trauma, and essentially there's direct damage to the brain as, as well as bleeding. And secondary brain injury says anything else that's not uh, the brain itself that's causing damage to it. And we'll kind of discuss all of this in just a second here. So for primary traumatic brain injuries so that's related to trauma, it compromises the cerebral blood flow and elevates the ICP. And the most common types of primary brain injuries are subdural hematomas, epidural hematomas, intraparagamal hemorrhage, and non-focal diffuse neuronal injury. So subdural hematomas, they're the most common types of brain bleeds, and these often requires near-surgical intervention, especially if you have a low GCS. And subdural hematomas are generally caused by deceleration or blunt force injuries, which causes shearing of the small bridging veins. And this uh, leads to an accumulation of blood, which increases the ICP and ultimately decreases the cerebral blood flow. Okay, next, epidural hematomas. Uh, this generally occurs when the middle cerebral artery is disrupted and is associated with skull fractures. That's actually high yield uh, board point. Um, and Compared to the subdural hematoma, it actually has a better prognosis. And uh, one of the hallmark features of an epidural hematoma is waxing and waning consciousness. And regarding the need for surgical intervention, basically 
If there's greater than 30 cc's of volume that's supratentorial, then you'll need, uh, generally will need to have a surgical intervention. And if it's infratentorial, you, uh, anything greater than 10 cc's needs surgical intervention. And this is due to the possibility of brainstem compression. Okay, third is intraparenchymal hemorrhage. And this is generally caused by a rapid deceleration of the brain in the skull. And it usually involves the tips of the frontal and temporal lobes. And it's associated with significant edema, necrosis, and other infarcts. And for these ones, uh, surgical uh, decompression uh, may be needed to reduce ICP. And again, it's going to kind of depend on the severity of the bleed as well as the patient's uh, GCS. Lastly, we have non-focal diffuse neuronal injury. And this, like the other ones, is uh, caused by a rapid deceleration or movement sufficient to disrupt neurons and axons. So generally speaking, very high velocity accidents and deceleration. And this is generally common in children. And interestingly enough, the damage to the neurons themselves is not particularly easy to see with CT. So you can actually have to get an MRI to uh, determine the, the the degree of damage. And even though it's a pretty severe injury, it usually does not need intervention unless you have to do something decompressive. So generally speaking, if you have diffuse neuron, neuronal injury, you're probably going to have some sort of other brain bleed as well. Okay, so that's the primary causes a uh, traumatic brain injury, the subdural hematoma, epidural hematoma, intraparenchymal hemorrhage, as well as non-focal diffuse neuronal injury. So next is the secondary brain injuries. And again, there's uh, different factors that causes damage to the brain. And some of these include things like systemic hypotension, so prolonged systolic blood pressure less than 90, hypoxia, which is defined as uh, PaO2 that's less than 60 millimeters of mercury, hypercapnia, which is defined as PaCO2 that's greater than 50 millimeters of mercury, and lastly, hyperthermia, that's defined as greater than 38 degrees Celsius. Okay, so again, basically, if you're not having enough blood pressure to perfuse the brain, that's going to be a problem. If you're not getting enough oxygen, that's a problem. You have too much CO2, that's a problem. And lastly, if you're heating the brain up too much, that's also a problem. So secondary brain uh, injury causes. Okay, the next part, we're going to spend a little bit of time on the management of patients with traumatic brain injuries. We kind of gone over this in the first episodes in uh, the neuro section, but we'll kind of go over it uh, briefly here as well. So regarding airway management for traumatic brain injuries, you basically want to establish a definitive airway if the patient is unable to maintain a patent airway. And basically, the GCS comes into play here if the patient is less than 8, intubate. Okay. Other than that, if you have any signs of intracranial hypertension or uncontrolled seizure activity, intubation is going to be a good idea as well, at least for airway protection. And generally speaking, if the patient is uh, a trauma patient and then you have any concern whatsoever for facial or skull injuries, you want to avoid nasal airways and any nasal gastric tubes just in case there's like a fracture there and you shove something in the nose and it goes into the brain. So that's a big no-no. Don't do that. Okay, and, and lastly, if 
they have some degree of brain damage, you're going to have to suspect some sort of damage in the C-spine as well, or at least you take the precautions of possible C-spine damage. So regarding intubation, the easiest thing to do is use video laryngoscopy because it helps reduce the amount of motion that is introduced into the C-spine. And of course, if you're super concerned, you can also have someone help you with manual inline stabilization as well. Okay, next, regarding induction, you basically the induction strategy is going to focus on hemodynamic stability and maintain the cerebral perfusion pressure. Things to keep in mind, the most common induction agents we use, propofol and atominate, it actually reduces the cerebral blood flow and also decreases CMRO2. And for these uh, patients, ketamine is also a possible alternative as it appears to have no increase or no clinical uh, significant increase in intracranial pressure. The good news is non-depolarizing muscle blockades, so things like rocaronium has no effects on cerebral uh, hemodynamics. That being said, succinylcholine, uh, theoretically, it increases the intracranial pressure but according to Barish, uh, it doesn't really have that much uh, clinical significant effect. So it's possible to use succinylcholine, but if you had the option to, non-depolarizing muscle blockades would be a good choice for these. Okay, next, regarding maintenance, if you're using acetylfluorine or some sort of a volatile gas, generally speaking, you want to try to use a little bit less than one MAC for, for these patients basically to prevent uncoupling of the on-regulation curve, and, um, which would uh, increase the cerebral blood flow and makes any bleeds up there worse and uh, would decrease the cerebral perfusion pressure. If you have time, like Tiva is technically preferable, but it may be difficult to titrate and it may be difficult to manage quickly in uh, a trauma case. Regarding positioning, generally speaking, uh, patients would be in a reverse T-break position, not only to help the surgeons have better surgical access, but also helps promote uh, drainage and reduces uh, the cerebral blood flow, reduces ICP, and so on and so forth. Regarding access, you want to have a large bore IV, at least uh, 18 if the patient is lost a lot of blood, Having a 16 or bigger uh, gauge needle for MTP is going to be beneficial for the patient. Regarding blood, make sure a patient is type and cross if it's a trauma coming in and check availability of the blood as well. Uh, one thing to keep in mind, compound skull fractures bleed the most out of different types of skull fractures. Regarding monitoring, A-line is a must because you have to aggressively treat hypotension and it's going to help you uh, obtain different labs like ABGs, tags, and whatever. Uh, so getting an A-line is, is super important. And I forgot if I mentioned it earlier, but uh, your cerebral perfusion pressure goal is going to be 50 to 70 millimeters of mercury. Regarding fluids, your goal is going to keep the patient euvolemic, especially after giving you mannitol because as you... We'll see, once you get mannitol, patient starts peeing out a, a lot of uh, urine. Uh, the, the urine itself becomes very clear. So you're going to have to stay on top of that any, and pretty much replace any fluid that's lost uh, 
after the mannitol infusion. And generally speaking, isotonic fluids is preferred for these patients. Theoretically, normal saline to help uh, prevent uh, cerebral edema is a good idea, though lactator ringer could also be used. And the interesting thing for these traumatic brain injury patients is albumin may actually increase mortality risk, um, but this is uh, seen in the ICU compared to the crystalloids. So crystalloids is going to be your, your primary resuscitation method. Okay, regarding ventilation, you're going to try to avoid hypoxemia, avoid excessive PEEP or positive inspiratory pressure as this prevents cerebral drainage. And interoperatively, uh, you could hyperventilate the patient. Usually your end title goal is like 30 to 35, but in the ICU, apparently it's not uh, recommended in the first 24 hours. Next, uh, pre-medication going to depend on your institution, but generally things like anticonvulsants, things like Capra, and if there's a lot of edema, you can give uh, mannitol per the surgeon's uh, request. Next, glucose control. You pretty much want to keep the glucose levels normal. So avoid hyperhypoglycemia. Um, regarding hyperglycemia, you want to treat the glucose if it's greater than 180. And lastly, other considerations for these brain injuries. One thing to keep in mind, uh, after the, the surgeons decompresses the skull, is the sudden hypotension. And when this happens, you want to make sure that you properly resuscitate the patient. Uh, might be a good idea to titrate the anesthetics down to effect. And if you really needed having some sort of vasopressor support, either as pushes or drips. And of course, if there's a lot of bleeding, then having uh, blood available to transfuse is going to be a must. Okay, so that's like the brief overview of traumatic brain injury. So next, we're going to move on to spinal cord injury. And we're going to first start off by talking about the quick anatomy facts for spinal cord injuries. So regarding sp normal spine structures, the anterior two-thirds of the vertebral body as well as the anterior longitudinal ligament is considered to be the anterior portion of the spine of the vertebra. And middle portion is the posterior third of the vertebral body plus the posterior longitudinal ligament and some parts of the posterior part of the annulus fibrosus. And lastly, the posterior segment of the vertebra is part of the lamina, the facets, the spinous process, as well as the interspinous ligaments. So those anterior, middle, posterior sections. And this is important to know because it helps you define whether or not the spine is unstable. So instability is defined as two or more columns that are damaged. And basically, you're going to need surgical decompression when the vertebral body loses more than 50% of its normal height or the spinal canal is narrowed more than 30% of the normal diameter. When you first evaluate these patients, having a lateral radiograph, the C-spine from the top all the way down to T1 is going to be crucial for these patients, especially uh, if that's where the, the, the damage is. The most important C-spine injuries to keep in mind are things that are above C2, 
because this causes apnea and death, basically. Because you remember C3 to 5 controls the phrenic nerve, which helps you, uh, which innervates the diaphragm and helps you breathe. So basically, any changes or any damages above C2, you decrease the vital capacity and inability to cough up secretions, which would lead to the death. Uh, signs of inadequate ventilation include things like rapid shallow breathing, increased work of breathing, and paradoxical abdominal movement. So if you have signs and symptoms of these, uh, respiratory distress, and you know that there's damage above C2, you're going to have to 100% secure the airway. So one thing to also keep in mind, uh, high spinal injuries could lead to neurogenic shock due to loss of sympathetic tone. And this is also defined as spinal shock. And if the patient is damaged anywhere between T1 and T4, they could have profound bradycardia due to the compromise of the cardio accelerator function at those levels. Because remember, heart is supplied by uh, autonomic innervation of the heart is T1 and T4. And if there's damage here, you can also have possible AV block. You can have uh, hypotension, as we kind of talked about, secondary to systemic vasodilation. And the treatment for this is basically supportive. So you can have the isotonic fluids, you can have vasopressors, inotropes to support the, the patient's hemodynamics. But the idea is to try not to over-resuscitate as this could lead to pulmonary edema. So again, if patient, depending on where the patient's uh, injury is, there's a certain degree of things you have to worry about. If it's damaged to C-spine, especially above the level of C2, you're concerned about apnea due to damage to the phrenic nerve, and you're going to have to immediately intubate the patient. Patients that have damage in the cardio accelerator portions, uh, the spine T1 and T4, you can expect to have possible signs of spinal shock, things like profound bradycardia as well as hypotension. And the treatment for uh, spinal, spinal shock is going to be mainly supportive. And management for spinal cord injuries is basically to try to prevent worsening of the current damage and minimize worsening of the neurological damage via the secondary things like hypotension and hypoperfusion. For these patients, uh, regarding pre-medications, uh, you may be asked to give methoprednisolone for spinal cord injury. Regarding induction, succinylcholine is okay for the first 24 hours of injury, but after that, you can risk hyperkalemia. And lastly, regarding blood pressure, you want to actually try to maintain a supranormal blood pressure, maps between 85 to 90 uh, millimeters mercury, basically to ensure that you're perfusing the spinal cord. All right, so let's finally get to the last third of this episode. And this is basically talking about pregnant patients in the setting of trauma. And generally speaking, you're going to manage these patients similarly to a non-pregnant patient. But there's a few big points to keep in mind for pregnant patients. First, normal signs of blood loss are generally late. So one of the things you can do is to look at urine output or fetal distress to determine hemodynamics. Speaking of which, fetal distress is the first sign of maternal compromise. Three, um, if the patient has any issues of hemodynamics, have the patient tilt to the left side and this basically displaces the uterus and reduces the aortal cable compression. Four, uh, pregnant patients have reduced FRC, so they decompensate a lot faster than a normal patient. 
And lastly, five, you should treat these patients as if they had a full stomach. Okay, uh, those are the big points. Now let's kind of briefly talk about the stages uh, of pregnancy and basically the, the anatomy of the injury. So for the first trimester, and this is defined as gestations 0 to 13 weeks, uh, the uterus is still going to be considered an intrapelvic organ that's protected from blunt force trauma. Uh, vaginal bleeding is going to be a poor prognostic sign of a non-viable embryo. For a second trimester, this is defined as 14 to 26 weeks, the uterus now becomes extra pelvic. And this increases the risk for direct fetal injury. But as a trade-off, the maternal organs are going to be shielded by the, the uterus. And then third trimester, defined as 27 to 40 weeks, the maternal organs are relatively shielded from injury except the bladder, which is at increased risk for damage. And due to the trauma, it's, it has an increased likelihood of precipitating early labor. So basically... Early on in pregnancy, the, the uterus is going to be an uh, intra-pelvic organ, so then you have more concern about damage to mom, and less so for the, the for fetus and uterus. But as uh, you go along in pregnancy, the fetus gets bigger, uterus gets bigger, and the maternal organs are going to be shielded for the most part, but you can have more possible damage to the uterus and fetus. All right, so some special considerations for pregnant patients and setting a trauma. Uh, first, we're going to talk about maternal physiology. And first thing to keep in mind is that pregnant patients have an increased circulating blood volume, which could mask the effects of significant blood loss. And like we mentioned earlier, looking at the urine output or signs of fetal distress, this can be your best friend in, the, in these cases. Regarding respiratory stuff, patients generally have a compensated respiratory alkalosis with normal CO2 around uh, 30 millimeters of mercury. And again, this is due to the increased minute ventilation of pregnant patients. And lastly, um, they, it is normal for them to have increased clotting factors and to be more hypercoagulable compared to the normal patient, uh, especially towards the end of pregnancy. And at term, fibrinogen is usually going to be pretty high. So anything Three like less than 300 is going to be abnormally low. Okay, so that's my maternal physiology. Next, as we kind of alluded to earlier, the aortic com cable compression. So basically, when the fetus uh, and uterus gets bigger throughout pregnancy, it's going to compress the major vessels in your abdomen, so abdominal aorta, IVC, and that's going to decrease the amount of blood that's getting circulated through the body. And it can actually decrease the cardiac output by up to 30%. Basically, you want to be concerned about this, especially if the patient is 20 weeks or greater in their gestation. And the major treatment for this, or at least to help with hemodynamics, as we kind of alluded to earlier, is to have the patient in the left tilt position. And this displaces the, the uterus, so it's not compressing the, the vessels, and you improve the hemodynamics. One way you can do this is basically have the patient on a spine board, the thing that goes throughout the entire body, and just shove a bunch of blankets there to have the, the patient tilted at 15 to 30 degrees. Okay, next, uh, maternal airway. Pregnant patients generally have an increased likelihood of difficult airway, uh, one thing to contribute to this is the soft tissue edema in the pharyngeal and laryngeal 
structures. Other things like increased breast size affects chest compliance and positioning in supine positions. As we mentioned earlier, pregnant patients generally have a reduced FRC, which predisposes them to rapid desaturation. And these patients would have incompetent lower esophageal sphincters, which increases their risk for aspiration. So again, that's why we treat these patients as if they had a full stomach, and we're going to for sure use uh, RSI for these patients if we have to intubate them. Next is anti-D immunoglobulin. So if the patient is Rh negative, you have the risk for isoimmunization with an Rh positive antigen. So if the, uh, the fetus is Rh positive, you can have an autoimmune reaction, especially if there's a trauma that penetrates the uterus and then you're releasing its contents to the maternal circulation and that's going to cause the hemolytic reactions. So basically, uh, if a mother is Rh negative, it's a good idea to uh, administer anti-D immunoglobulin within 72 hours of the trauma. Okay, next is fetal monitoring. Basically, you don't necessarily have to do it if the mom is until the mom is stable or hemodynamically stable. And you don't necessarily have to do it for a fetus that's uh, younger than 24 weeks. At least like in the continuous monitoring, you don't really need it. But if you are, uh, consider to do it for about two to four hours. And the important thing is the uteroplacental unit, its blood flow is not autoregulated. So any reduction in maternal cardiac output could decrease the perfusion to the placenta and the, and the fetus. Okay, so that's pretty much it for the intro to trauma anesthesia series. Uh, I hope you guys learned a lot with, uh, from listening uh, to, to these episodes. I sure did during my month, Trauma Nights. So I kind of tried to end the series where I talk about uh, pregnant patients uh, because I'm going to be going on to OB next. So expect to have uh, some uh, more OB-related uh, episodes in the coming weeks. But I guess before that, if you're really itching for some episodes on OB, like the basic stuff like physiology and things to consider for pregnant patients, I welcome you to take a look at uh, my previous podcast that I made uh, in, in med school, the super high yield anesthesia, like the, the first one. And I have a few episodes on OB anesthesia. And I'll kind of mention this fact again in the next episodes. But yeah, again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And hopefully uh, you enjoyed the, the previous one as well. And hopefully you learned a lot. Um, if you have time, I'd really appreciate it if you take the post survey at this point. And if you ever have any questions, concerns, comments about this, or suggestions on improving the podcast, or suggestions on uh, episode ideas, I would love to hear from you. I have my email and social media uh, accounts listed in the description below or wherever it is on the uh, platform you're using. So I'm going to go ahead and finish off this episode by giving you a joke. And this one is from the subreddit Dad Jokes from user stutters. What is blue and not very heavy? Light blue. All right, guys, uh, thank you very much for tuning in. This is Scott, the anesthesia resident, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.